Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Ivan Sandoval Cervantes, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We'll be talking about his book, Oaxaca and Motion, an Ethnography of Internal, Transnational, and Return Migration, recently published by the University of Texas Press. Thank you very much, Ivan, for joining us today. Thank you so much for, for having me, Aliza. Of course, it's really a treat to have you today. So I've been following your work over the years for quite some time, and I'm really excited to speak about it on the podcast. So it will be a very special episode for me. Um, But for our listeners, as we start, can you introduce yourself? How did you come to anthropology? Uh, well, uh, um, thank you for this for this question. I know that this is the question that you start the the, the, the interviews with, and I always think it's a really <laughs> difficult question. Uh, so, my, I mean, I came to anthropology. I think uh, mostly because of different reasons. At the time um, when I was supposed to start uh, my uh, college. I had moved from Ciudad Juarez to Puebla, so um, so that movement, which in Mexico really sort of showed me how there were different Mexicos within Mexico. It was mm. also, I mean, the, the the Zapatista movement in 1994 was when I when I moved to Puebla, and that really sort of I don't know, in a way, mark the, my my political thinking in a lot of ways, sort of trying to to becoming aware of like what was happening in Mexico while also moving. And, and, and another thing that, that happened is that I always wanted to study uh, literature. I wanted to be a writer, 
but I, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't figure out a path to become a writer, I guess. And, <laughs> um, and, and I started reading anthropology, especially, specifically Carlos Castaneda, who, as you, as you may know, he's like a very controversial figure because people don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of controversy that I won't get into it, <laughs> but I started reading Carlos Castaneda. I was in like a, a different context in, in, in Puebla, sort of getting to know central Mexico. And, um, and I thought, you know, like anthropology sounds like a, 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 a discipline where you can uh, write and, and think about um, weird stuff. Right. So that was sort of the way in which I, I started thinking about um, about anthropology and I want and why I wanted to to study anthropology. And in Mexico, there's a weird system where you have to pick your your I mean, maybe it's weird in 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 in, in contrast to the U.S., but maybe similar to other countries, but uh, where you have to pick your your B.A. from the very beginning. You don't get to sort too. of chop around. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. it's, it's a it's a huge decision, right? Because you're 18 or 19 or whatever, and you're committing yourself to going to school for five years, um, studying something that you don't really know what it is. So I sort <laughs> of uh, committed to to doing anthropology, and 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 really when I started taking classes at the Universidad de las Américas Puebla in in, in Cholula, uh, that that really just confirmed that I had taken the, the correct decision and, and it, it really changed the way in which I thought about anthropology, um, sort of moving away from, from these more um, Carlos Castaneda sort of ideas or ways of thinking and thinking more about rural Mexico and, and the, the, the complex realities of rural Mexico, um, especially living in a place where you, I mean, where you, were facing those realities every day, right? Going to college in Cholula, which is a, a, a city with a lot of, of history uh, and, and sort of taking those classes and being able to see basically what you were talking about in classes just by walking outside mm-hmm. of, of campus, right? So mm-hmm. so for me, that really, that was really the path to, to anthropology and also in a lot of ways, the the... the it shaped the way in which I think about anthropology now, um, those those first few years of, of doing uh, anthropology. Well, I'm really glad, personally, that you took the leap and went with anthropology, which led us to this book. Um, and, you know, just to jump to the book, so Oaxaca in Motion really pushes us to understand migration multidimensionally. And in the book, you show us that international, transnational, and return migration all shape each other. So, you know, you've told us a little bit about how Cholula shaped you as an anthropologist, but I'm also curious to hear more about how Santana Zegache brought you to this book. So how does Zegache provoke us to think about migration as a multiplicity? I, I think this is a really great question because it is really, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a classic story uh, of how it doesn't matter how my research you've done previously or how well you think you know a situation or a specific context, but once you go, get to the field and you start doing field work, that really shapes the stories that you tell and, and what is important <laughs> to the people you're working with, right? Because when I was, I mean, I had done 
researched previously in different places of, of Oaxaca. And when I was trying to, to conceptualize my, my, my doctoral dissertation, I thought that I would be doing research on traditional agriculture and, 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 and how it was being sort of uh, erased or how uh, it was becoming problematic for a lot of people to engage in traditional agriculture in Oaxaca. And I, and, and I visited different communities and, and I wrote uh, grant proposals to, to do my, fee, my first sort of field visit. And when I got to Segache, I started talking to, to the people of Segache about agriculture. But it, this, this topic wasn't really getting a lot of traction. And people were, I mean, they were talking to me, but also being a little bit dismissive. And, and, and I was really wondering what the future of, of my research in that particular site would be. And then, and then I remember very vividly being a little bit disappointed, thinking if I had to change um, the field site or change the topic and walking by a cemetery and, and a group of men sort of called me to join them. They were um, digging a, a grave and, um, and drinking uh, some mezcal. So I joined them and I told them what I was looking for and, and, and I showed them the letter from the University of Oregon. Um, so that they that they could see that I was like a, an actual researcher, and as soon as they saw Oregon, they started talking about their experiences in Oregon and about the relatives they had in Oregon and how um, they they had lived in Oregon. They had helped build the the dorms for the University of Oregon, and all of these different um, stories. And I and I could see that they really wanted to talk to me about Oregon. And at that time, I, I, I mean, I had been in Oregon for a year, so, so they, they knew a lot more about Oregon than, than I did. And I sort of started thinking more about uh, migration in that context and, and, and what it meant for people from Segache to go specifically to, to Oregon, where I was living, and I, I didn't know there were people from Segache at that time. And um, and another moment that really sort of I think um, shaped how I see migration as multiplicity that has to do with Segache, but I'm sure um, this is this is something that a lot of people can find in in many other places is when I was trying to interview women um, and trying to get their sort of perspective on migration to the U.S. and and one of the things that I that that happened to me and that I describe in the book is asking this woman if I could interview her, and 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 her her name um, in the book is Teresa, and and she told me, um, well, you can interview me, but I'm not a migrant. And she was very clear about the fact that she was not a migrant. And as we got we started talking, she she sort of very casually revealed that she had lived in Mexico City for ten years. And that really made me think about what, I mean, what it, what the term migrant meant in that context, but also in the context of, of the academia and, and, and how we often think about migrant in this very, in this very limited way, right? Only defining people who cross um, international borders. And, and then I, I sort of started thinking about this, the experience of this, of this particular woman. And I saw that this was replicated, that a lot of women had had experiences migrating to Mexico City and coming back and, 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 and I mean, returning to, to Segache, having had a lot of 
difficult experiences uh, or experiences that had been life-changing. So I really started seeing how households had migrants both in Mexico City and in the U.S. And, and, and then the sort of idea of, of people who joined the military, it started also appearing um, in, the, in the interviews I did, in, in the conversations I had. And that's how I started, started sort of thinking about migration, um, I think, in a, in a looser way, trying to sort of articulate these different movements to this lens of migration. Wow, thanks so much for this very rich response, Ivan, and really taking us through the people that you spoke to. And, you know, I immediately have a couple of questions based on that. So first, you know, you mentioned the man you shared their mascot with and their relatives, as well as, you know, some households. So this makes me think about how you used family throughout the book, right? It comes across as... um a main focus maybe, but you understand family beyond the biological. So can you speak to how you came to define family and how this definition opened up your thinking about kinship and migration? <clears throat> yeah, sure. I, and I think these are really hard questions because I think the concept <laughs> of the family is really tricky to handle analytically uh-huh. and theoretically. Because because I think we all everyone thinks we understand what family is, but at the same time it can it means so many different things to different people at different times, right? Who you include in your family can change um, a lot, mm-hmm. and and this is something that I kept seeing in Segache when I was doing fieldwork. So maybe one year um, when I was doing when I was visiting for during the summers to 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 do my research, maybe one year a particular. Um, individual will talk, will talk a lot about someone else who was their cousin or, 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 or something like that. And then the next year they would, they wouldn't know where this person was. They, they, they weren't really emphasizing that connection. So in thinking about this, I tried to think about relatedness following um, Jeanette Carson and others, but without really losing family as a concept, at least as a concept as that, that people from Segachi use. So relatedness in, in, in my reading offers a, a more dynamic view of social relationships and emphasizes the work of making relationships, making family as opposed to just assuming that family is something given, right? And that it's always there, it's, it's always stable. Um, and also I think it, it allows um, to, to, to signal that sometimes people who are family on paper are not doing things together. So, so they might... They, they might be family, but that doesn't mean that they are acting as a family. Mm. Um, and, and other people who are not on paper family might be uh, spending more time with, with specific individuals, right? So the way in which we see, we think about uh, family as something that is, that is given and something that, that, that one has to, to make, that one has to uh, do they work to, to be part of a family? So, so in Tegache, that like I was sort of um, hinting at, a lot of people will say that they are related, but again, only in a specific times, right? So people will talk about um, migrating to Oregon because they had a cousin there, but then, um, but then maybe things happen and they don't really talk about that person as a cousin, but rather as like an acquaintance or someone that they know or a friend. So, so 
for me doing this research, I really tried to be in contact with people who might belong to the same family, but but even if they don't spend time together, um, try to understand what caused that separation, right? And how the discourse of family was being, um, becomes flexible and how at times it becomes more important than, than, than others. And I think this is especially, I mean, for me, this was especially clear in the context of migration because a lot of people who migrate to, to especially to Oregon, created bonds with 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 people that kind of look like like family bonds but in reality those bonds sometimes would disappear that's why i sort of also want to think about friendships and migration and how some forms of friendship uh, might become permanent or more family-like than than family relations so so, I mean, that's why I think it's tricky because the, the concept of the family, I think I keep using it, even though I, I do want to argue that that this is something that is very dynamic and flexible and not very stable. And we often think that family is stable. And that's why, like, I think as, a, as an analytical concept, it's so attractive because everyone assumes what family is. But in practice, family can mean many different things at different times. Absolutely. And I think this comes across very strongly in the book. Um, And speaking about things that are not stable, I want to bring up the question of gender. So I was really stuck by struck by the chapters where we hear about women and their experiences with interborder and transborder migration. You show us that these different kinds of mobility shape kinship and gender in Zagace, yet they also have limits to how much they can change. So what are the possibilities and limits of thinking about migration together with kinship and gender? And I, I really like this question because that's the first chapter that I wrote for my for my dissertation. And I think part of the reason why I wrote this chapter first is because uh, for me, it really highlighted a lot of important topics that are interconnected in ways that are not always that obvious. Uh, Not only the relationship between my migrant husbands and wives, but also between women who are internal migrants and who sometimes challenge conventional ideas about family, while at the same time, for example, creating new families in Mexico City. So when thinking about how kinship, gender, and care all combine with different migration trajectories, it, this also pushed me to think beyond this, this sort of dyadic relationship of husband and wife. Instead, I had to think about all the different family relationships that women have to sustain and what it means when they cannot sustain them or when they just simply don't, don't want to, to sustain them. So, for example, I, I try to pay close attention to the daughter-in-law, mother-in-law relationship to try to understand how family ties are, are, are multidimensional and require like really complex balancing acts. Um, also, the relationship between parents and daughters, especially when young women migrate to Mexico City, I think that's also, in, when thinking about care, that's also a relationship that becomes... Um, that can be very heavy in, in, in how women weight their responsibilities. And, and I think, uh, like, I mean, like I say in the book, family relationships have a, a really important care uh, elements that not only require staying in touch, visiting, um, but they also require uh, resources like wealth, remittances, 
and 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 going back right and making sure that mm-hmm. this this relationship is maintained through time even when you're somewhere else but in addition i think um, there's also a moral element that requires children especially especially daughters to uphold a certain morality that has to do with the relationships they create and sustain especially for migrant women who migrate to mexico city so different relationships have different emotional weights that that act differently depending on the kind of migration and, and the kind of experiences that women have. Uh, but also thinking about women who stay, and, and I think this 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 is when I read your question, this is what I came to mind. Women who stay, especially um, daughters of migrants, of migrant men, there is a sense in which they can also alter conventional gender roles in ways that don't always um, seem structural, right, or, or, or widespread, or, or maybe um, as anthropologists, who, who, when we're always looking at those big changes, those structural changes, a lot of these changes, for me, didn't weren't really reflected in the structure, but do, I think, change how people um, see gender and kinship relationships in their daily lives, which I, which I think is how people start thinking about new new kinship and gender models and, and talking about them to their friends, to their relatives, to people who are in the community. So I talk, um, for example, um, about how children, especially daughters, especially um, younger daughters, are able to, to push their, their fathers into activities that resemble maybe more gender equality, even if they're not necessarily um, accompanied by ideas of gender equality. So, for example, a man who who didn't take an active role in raising their kids because he was in the U.S. might be taking a more active role in raising his grandkids, um, which creates new spaces for for discussing gender equality, even if this is not directly addressed. So even if he's not necessarily framing his new role as caretaker, as a gender issue, there's that it sort of allows a conversation to 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 begin about the things that men and women can do. And I think this is this is important when thinking about migration and gender because it's not always these big changes that take place in the community that that um, that we have to look at, but sometimes it's these really small changes that might even seem um, just individual that can actually provoke um, different conversations or, 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 or maybe create uh, different discussions than before. Indeed. And, you know, this also makes me think about another thread in the book that is masculinity. Uh, And, you know, I really want to ask you to think about that with me through your term labor corridors. So what does labor corridors mean and what can different labor corridors that you introduced to us throughout the book tell us about masculinity? Yeah, so I use labor corridor to talk about certain migration and, and work trajectories that, that became really obvious while I was in Oaxaca, especially. And um, and that's and, and it's connected to masculinity because men kept telling me about how they work in agricultural fields, then some of them migrated to the US, other joined the, the military if they didn't have enough resources to go to the US and then later on migrated to the U.S. and other sort of stayed in the military for, for many years and then returned to, to Segache. This sort of pattern, I, I, I sort of realized, was related to certain abilities that, that these men had developed through time and especially through work 
um, that enable them to move um, to certain places, but not not in others. And 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 this might be changing now. I mean, it, it's always changing because disabilities are always um, changing depending on 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 the on the labor market, right? So, for example, men who were um, used to working in agriculture didn't didn't find it that hard to work in agriculture in the U.S. That's that's one of the sort of continuities that I that I that I see in those labor corridors that I think go beyond this again this this methodological nationalism that would see this huge transformation from men being living in Mexico and then moving to the U.S. My my argument with these labor corridors is that there's more of a continuity in the experiences of men. Other men, for example, joined the military and learned to cook. So they they didn't find it hard to work as cooks in the US. And this is something that, that happened a couple of times. Men who were um, cooking in, for example, one one particular person who was cooking in, who, who's a cook in, in Seattle, who had cooked for the military for a long time. He thought that he, I mean, he, he said that his work cooking in the U.S. was pretty easy because he used to cook for like 300, 400 people, right? So so in addition to, to these sort of abilities, there's all other informal abilities that are also developed, particularly in the military, um, that makes it easier for people to, to, to cross the Mexico-U.S. border with, without documents. And this is uh, people who, who were train as soldiers in, in, in the Mexican military, when they migrated, they were already, when they crossed the Sonoran Desert, they were already used to these long treks and they were used to facing many dangers while crossing, right? So not to diminish the, 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 how dangerous that crossing is, but for many of these, of these men, this was seen as a continuation of that work that they had already been doing in, in, in the army, right? This, this sort of sacrifice that they had done in the army sort of was seen as, a, as, as um, it was seen as connected to, to their crossing to, to, the, to the U.S. So in a way, being a soldier seemed to make them more prepared to migrate to the U.S. and to be able to adapt more quickly, right? So that's what I want to emphasize when I talk about labor corridors. That's, that's when we think about the Mexico-U.S. border, these labor corridors are really sort of um, created, um, shape the mobility of men in a way that that just talking about the the Mexico-U.S. border wouldn't allow us to to see. And these labor corridors, as I also try to highlight in the book, are a direct response to to global, national, and, and regional uh, conditions, right? Such as, for example, the increase in their enrollment of soldiers. After the beginning of the so-called war on drugs initiated by Calderon in 2006, and at the same time, like for example, other changes like the increased militarization of the Mexico-U.S. border in 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 2001, also created new types of work for for segacheños, who were used to returning to Segache for the winter, uh, but uh, but in the winter there's a decrease in agricultural activity in the Pacific Northwest, and also the energy bills get higher. Right, so so men from Segache had to had to look for year-round work that that became directly incorporated into into the work that they do now. Like for example, um, cutting down Christmas trees and and harvesting uh, hops for making beer, and this is sort of incorporated into narratives of, of masculinity that I argue are connected from the agricultural fields of Segache all the way to to the Pacific uh, Northwest. 
And I think, like I was saying at the beginning, I think these labor corridors also um, will change in the next few years because I think younger men from Segachi are learning new skills, different skills. They're also being incorporated into other regional uh, economies, like, for example, the city of Querétaro in central Mexico that's drawing a lot of internal migration because it's consolidating itself as an industrial um, center in, in Mexico. So we'll see how these labor corridors change in the, in the future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Absolutely. Again, one of the things that don't <laughs> stay stable, right? Um, but, you know, based on your answer, you know, something that was really interesting to me in the book was your proposal to think about military as a form of migration rather than solely an occupation. And, you know, you addressed this a little bit, but I want to ask you, what is at stake in thinking about military as a form of migration? Uh, I, I, I really like the framing of these questions because I do think there's something at stake for me here. And, and, and sometimes I've gotten a, a bit of pushback on this idea, or at least people are, are surprised that I'm thinking of the military as a form of migration. And when I started thinking more explicitly about internal migration and internal borders, I noticed that while most men migrated to the, to the U.S. directly, many of them um, that had experience being in the military they really highlighted this experience. This was something that was really important for them, even um, when thinking about migrating to, to the U.S. So one thing that, that I, I'll say is that they didn't really talk about serving their country, right? This, joining the military was not something that, that most of, I mean, at least it was not their primary concern to, to be part of this nationalistic project. Rather, they joined the military because um, they were able to get resources, but also um, learn, learn new abilities, learn new things, sometimes get a formal education. They were able to, to travel to new places, experiment new foods, uh, um, meet different people, right? So, so this really, um, the way in which they, they talk about their training and their time in the military really resemble how they talk about migrating to the U.S., right? So this this not only not only talking about the hardships they face, but also uh, because they they I mean they they face new situations. They had to 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 engage with new communities, and also they face different forms of discrimination, and that that sometimes force them to rethink their own identities as Zapotec men. Um, so um, so when thinking about men who had migrated to places as far away as Chihuahua or Sonora, which are pretty far away from from, from Oaxaca, 
um, and, and, and they had spent many, many years in those northern states. Um, they, and so sometimes they would tell me that they barely knew their own state of Oaxaca because they hadn't really traveled within Oaxaca. So I started seeing and enrolling in the military. It was not simply an occupation, but also an opportunity to, to move somewhere else, which it's also, I think, part of why people migrate. So they were not only engaging in learning new things and getting more resources, they were also uh, learning what is what la- like to live in, in, in a new environment, to socialize with new communities, both within the military base, that, that is one thing, and, and also outside the military base. And a lot of people who, who went to, to Chihuahua or Sonora or to Chiapas, sometimes they would get married there and, and start their own families there, right? And then they would return with with their their wives or or their children right so so for me that was really what got me thinking into joining of joining the military as a form of migration just because the way in which they talk about these experiences resembled um the way in which they talk about migrating um and and also because they 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 face all of these new new environments right and they all of these new challenges and I think in many ways, uh, there are similarities uh, with people from, from certain politically and economically marginalized groups from the U.S. who also join the military, not mm-hmm. because they want to like serve the nation, right, but because they, they need their, their resources and they seek, they're also seeking new experiences, but don't have really the means to engage in other types of activities. So I think that, that this approach can also be used for thinking about internal migration in, in, in other countries, in the U.S., but I'm sure in other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was on my mind. That was precisely on my mind when I was reading those chapters. So that's really helpful. Um, but as you know, we're the Mobilities and Methods channel. So I want to spend some time speaking about your methodology as well. Um, In the book, you locate the book within the genre of multi-sided ethnography. So could you speak to us about your approach to multi-sided ethnography? Yes. So so once I started sort of seeing how families had different migrants, right, people who migrated to different parts and how they all sort of came together in the same family or, or how they all form part of the same family, I really wanted to my approach to multi-sided ethnography to follow the families, to follow the migration uh, histories of the families and see how different people who identified uh, as being from the same family thought about these, these global households, right? So for example, how uh, one of, some of the questions that I, that I had they were, were like how do women who stay in Mexico City think about migration as opposed to women who have never left Segache or women who went directly to the U.S.? <clears throat> or how do men uh, see themselves when comparing themselves and their experiences to other men who, who never migrated or who never joined the Mexican military? So when thinking about gender, uh, especially masculinity, I think migration and how different men moved to different places really sort of stood out uh, stood out uh, for me in my research. And the way and the way in which I, I engage in this, um, again, this wasn't my plan originally, right? But once I started learning about this Segachi community in Oregon, I, I was also in charge of taking medicines back to Mexico and, and taking documents and, and a lot of food to, to people in the U.S. So I also sort of became ingrained in, in this sort of 
um, circulation of, of, of goods. Um, and, and something that became really evident as I did ethnography um, in different places was that people's attitudes towards me were also very different um, depending on their location. So, um, for example, when I attempted to, to interview women in Segache privately, it wasn't always easy um, because there, there were a lot of um, they, there were a lot of concerns about people watching me interview women in their private spaces. But in Mexico City and in the U.S., this was not the case, right? So, um, so although in Mexico City, people were really reluctant to meet with me without uh, making sure that I was who I said I was. Um, so they were also checking in with their relatives in back in Segache to make sure that, that they knew me. Uh, but they people would be more open. Women especially would be more open to talking to me uh, privately. Um, so, so in a way, I could see how each side uh, produced not only these sort of multiple experiences, but also different ways of framing the work that I was doing. That I think what directly influenced the the the, the things that people were were telling me. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Ivan, and. Um, I also want to turn back to the question of the family in terms of your methodology. So throughout the book, the family is a site of care, but also of conflict and violence. And you generously share with your readers that how you interact with families, what you say to them, to whom you relay information, have been ethical concerns and questions for you. So could you tell us about how you navigated the ethical terrain of doing fieldwork through and with families? This is something that I that I thought about a lot, not only because like of the ethical dimensions, but also because of its practical dimensions when when doing uh, fieldwork, right? So so um, so one of the examples that that I share in the book is that um, I was talking to 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 two groups that in theory belong to the same family, but at the time of my fieldwork, they weren't talking to each other and they they had pretty a pretty bad relationship among them. And because of the of the way in which um, the way in which these people have these patrilocal residents, they live next to each other. This was the case of two brothers who were not uh, on speaking terms and 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 had like I said, a pretty bad relationship, but they were neighbors. So, um, so it was hard for me because every time I would go to to talk to one of the of the groups, they would ask me about what the other side had said, and and vice versa, right? So I was in this in this difficult position where I I didn't want to lie, but at the same time I didn't want to to betray the trust of of one of the of the groups. Um, that were confiding in me and, and, and talking to me and sort of taking me in, right? So, um, so one of the things that I, I, I started reflecting um, when this was happening is, is I really started thinking about this separation between our fieldwork self and our non-fieldwork self. And I know that this has been debated for many years, right? Especially for people, for those of us who don't get to physically leave for most of the time where we do research, that we can sort of create these two these two selves, right? The 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 one for the field and, and one for the for for work or for the university or for work wherever it is that we spend most of, of our time. So for me, 
uh, it was really important to think um, whether how I acted while doing fieldwork would look similar to how I acted when not doing fieldwork, right? And 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 how in many instances, um, like we try to to create this artificial separation between who we are in the field from who you, who we are outside the field. So in a lot of ways, I, I I mean, I think for me, this really sort of resemble, or I try to think about the way in which I had to act within like my own family, right? Or my own, um, um, the group of people that I know and how it's important to 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 think about what we share um, in, in, in ethical terms, especially when, when you know that there are these, these um, relationships that are not necessarily friendly. Um, so this is not something that I, I mean I've, I've been able to resolve because I think it's, it's complicated and, it, and it's and it's ongoing. Uh, but but I but for me it was really important, right, to think how to how to be. I mean, it sounds cliche, right? But how to be myself with both parties, but not without betraying um, without betraying their their confidence, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, you know, these are such generative questions. And speaking of questions, uh, my last question is, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions in which you're interested right now? Uh, right now, well, now that the, now that the book is out, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to get another uh, project started that I've been, I've been thinking about for quite a few years, but the pandemic sort of got in the way of, of fieldwork a little bit. And I've been I've been um, thinking a lot about um, animal uh, protection activists in Mexico, particularly in Ciudad Juarez, where, where I am from, and their relationship with um, with other social movements. In particular, now I'm 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 thinking about the the way in which a lot of these animal protection movements that in Mexico are called animalistas. Are are taking on a, a a punitivist approach to to solving um, the cases of animal abuse and how different political parties and different sort of uh, political ideas that are circulating uh, are are sort of taking hold of these of these animal protection uh, activists and the animal protection uh, movement. So I'm trying to think about the implications of this of this animal protection movement particularly um, thinking about animal abuse in a context such as Mexico, where, where violence continues to be pretty much um, a, a, a daily occurrence in, 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 in very um, specific ways and, and very um, spectacular ways sometimes. So, so what is the, the, the relationship between and the animal protection activists and other social movements that are also looking to end impunity and violence, and and how um, political parties are sort of sort of engaging in these conversations. Well, that is so interesting, and we'll be looking forward to that book, and hopefully we'll have you back when it's out. <laughs> so thanks, thank you very much, Ivan, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you. I'm your host, Aliza Rija. This discussion of Oaxaca in Motion, an ethnography of internal, transnational, and return migration, published by the University of Texas Press, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>